Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. All right, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And boy, have a lot of things changed, speaking of driving change, uh, since our last episode. But we're honored, blessed, and fortunate today to have a twofer. We got a two-for-one two for guest appearance here with Todd and Beth Guckenberger, who are just amazing human beings, amazing individuals. Um, I've known Todd a little bit longer than I've known Beth, but I can tell you that they have made a huge impact on the world by just living out their purpose. Talk about people who know how to drive change. Uh, these two definitely can do that. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, so let's start off with a little bit of fun to begin with. <laughs> what has changed the most for you two in the last two weeks? Uh, for us two, for sure, we've had more time together as both of us travel in, intensively. And uh, we, we've been completely grounded, which actually has been a, a kind of a little benefit. Yes, and our college, we have four college students, so all of those guys have come home to shelter in place here in the house. So our, our dinner table is fuller, and um, I was looking at my uh, walking app the other day, and I think I've taken a significantly more steps in the last two weeks than I have in the two weeks prior. Between exercise, company, and time together, a lot has changed. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. We, uh, we had a, an episode yesterday with the wind. We had a windstorm, and uh, the power went out in our neighborhood for about three to four hours. And it took about another two or three hours for the internet to actually uh, reset itself and come back on. Um, and I will tell you, there was a bit of panic setting in in the, in the Bloomfield household. <laughs> it is amazing how much has changed. Even you know, if you think about now that we're all sheltering in place and we're all confined to our individual quarters, imagine when there wasn't social media and imagine when there wasn't the internet. Um, I was talking to my, my oldest daughter, who's a, a freshman at Ohio State, who's obviously home. And she's getting a little stir crazy, but she still feels fairly connected because she's FaceTiming and, you know, things like Zoom and you got all these new technologies that are helping keep us somewhat connected. Um, have you guys found that same with your with your crew as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for sure, our, our kids in particular, they're they're already experts at you know, social media and communicating through means of media. Uh, and for our, our staff team, because we're a global organization, we actually have a lot of uh, patterns of Zoom meetings and, and hangouts uh, virtually. So we're, we were pretty used to that. It's definitely been a lot more. I just, our, our director of IT did some statistics. I think on one day we had like 280 unique uh, meetings, virtual meetings, and scheduled throughout the calendar. So it was crazy. Wow. Yeah. You don't often think about organizations like you guys that are global. And then when you have something like this happens, it just it can change. It changes the mindset of a lot of folks, but for, for folks like you that are prepared for it, you can at least still communicate on a regular basis. So, so let's, let's jump in a little bit to, to, your, to your global impact you've had. And, and I will tell you that a lot of the listeners know that our youngest daughter, Priya, was adopted from India. And I know that, that you guys have chosen a path that is directly impacting the lives of not just orphans, but particularly orphans around the world. Tell us a little bit about uh, that story of how you guys came to found back-to-back, -back, just how you're wired to do something so just audacious and crazy like that that most people wouldn't dream of doing. Tell us that story. Todd and I were um, 
teachers. Like we graduated from Indiana University and we were teachers. So we had the summers free and we were volunteering in a local church with their youth ministry. And we loved um, travel. We had traveled a bunch on mission trips in college with the ministry uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. So our youth pastor said, hey, why don't you take high school kids with me on some mission trips in the summertime? And so we did that like all the early summers of the 90s. So like 93, 4, 5, 6. And um, the last um, time we did that with that church, the summer 1996, we went really on a bad mission trip. We were painting a wall um, that was blue into green. And the year before we painted it from green to blue. (laughs) And it wasn't, we weren't really sweeping uh, up the students or ourselves into what God was doing in that city. And that really sparked some conversation about what could missions look like. Uh, We hijacked that trip, rerouted us on the last day to an orphanage and um, God really spoke to us that day. He gave us, we saw some kids who didn't have enough food and we started to talk about all the people we knew in our day lives back in Cincinnati that we'd give food to an orphan if they just knew how to do it. And uh, we were double income and no kids in that time frame. We have a lot of kids now, but that was before all of that. So we decided to live off of just one salary for the next year to put the other salary in a savings account and to see at the end of that year what we were looking at and what we might be able to do. So the following summer, 97, we took our one-year savings account and we moved to Mexico. And that's kind of how it all started. Wow. And so that journey of that first year then, first of all, we always, always preach to people that they got to know their why, right? You got to have your why. And if you really, truly understand your why, you can endure just about any how and what uh, to walk that why out. And so clearly you two were aligned on your why uh, pretty early in your marriage, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in in that moment when when we hijacked that one mission trip, that we were with those teens, we went into that that home and we served the next day and we realized that, you know, kids weren't eating, but it was, we call that one of our defining mom- moments. It's, it's that, it's that moment where we both kind of looked at each other and said, we can't not do something about this and we're going to be part of the solution. So, and that's actually really stayed true for the last 20 plus years. It's, it's, uh, we've stayed a unified front on, we are about serving orphans and vulnerable children. That's, that's incredible. So, so tell me a story, tell our audience a story of that first year. You moved to Mexico, you take a life, you take basically a, a year savings of one of your salaries, you, you, you move it, you uproot everything, you move down to Mexico. And I'm sure it was just easy, right? You guys just, people started <laughs> giving you buildings and giving you funds. And I'm sure there was nothing for you guys to overcome from a barrier standpoint, right? Yeah, we didn't speak any Spanish at the time. We would go on to live um, for 15 years in Mexico, but in the beginning, we didn't speak any Spanish. We didn't. We had one relationship in the city. There was someone from who, a Mexican family who had studied at the university in our hometown here in the United States that went back to that city. That's why we picked the particular city we moved to because we knew this family who had spent some time in the U.S. But basically, no relationships outside of them. No language skills. Uh, eight days, one of the stories that kind of illustrates how utterly from ground zero we started is that eight days after we arrived, we had turned all of our savings account, which was one year of a teacher salary, into traveler's checks because this was 1997 when traveler's checks were how you transferred money across borders. We now know all kinds of other ways to do it, but that's what we did then. And we went to a bank to turn those traveler's checks into pesos that we were going to just keep in a safe because we didn't have the appropriate paperwork to open a bank account at that point. And um, the lady was giving me some kind of instructions through the glass window. I didn't really understand what she was saying. 
we were going back and forth. When someone doesn't think you understand them, they get like really slow and loud. So she starts to get, you know, louder and louder and shorter and slower. And she was, she was pointing to something on the check. Finally, I think I understood one of the words that she said, and I wrote it down on a piece of paper to show her through the glass to see if I was on the right track. The word I heard her say was nombre. And she points to the line at the bottom of the check. And I was like, okay, I get it. So I picked up the pen and on that line, I wrote the word nombre, which of course that is Spanish for name. She was inviting me to sign the checks, you know? And when I think back, you know, today, you know, this year, our organizational transfer over $10 million in rupee and naira and pesos around the world. But if we just told the last chapter of the story and not the first chapter of the story, you might, you might give credit to the wrong person. We, we were the very definition of naive. Wow. You don't by chance, like have that framed somewhere on the wall, do you? Like a, a traveler's <laughs> check with nombre on it, right? <laughs> just burned in our memories, that's all. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's amazing. So, so you figured out the money situation. You, you got your, uh, <laughs> you got all these pesos saved in a mattress somewhere. Um, and then what happened? How, how did you guys take the next step? What did it look like? Well, some of the first things we did, so we, we knew, we obviously worked with youth here in, in, in our hometown. And so we knew that, you know, probably 50 people might come and join us in what we were doing. One of our hearts was we wanted to engage people that had resources to serve individuals who didn't. Um, and so, but by the end of that first year, over 350 people had come to serve with us in Mexico. So we quickly, you know, we were renting a house, we'd have people sleep on the floor. I mean, it was, it was the, 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 the epitome of a startup in some, in so many ways. And, uh, and, but throughout that whole year, we obviously grew in our language development. We were able to serve more significantly in the different orphanages that we came alongside. We didn't run orphanages. We, we partnered with existing leadership to help them improve and be better. So it was, it was definitely a lot of learning and a lot of first for that first year. Yeah. I think that what, what this is a great example of, and I want the listeners to think about is some, sometimes you can get on your own hamster wheel um, wherever you're located and you can say, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because I don't know what else to do. And what I want to encourage people to is, is seek out those who are leading in an area that you're passionate about and, and just follow them. It, it sounds so simple, right? If you don't know what to do, go find people who are leading in an area that you're passionate about and follow them. And during mm. that path, sometimes you'll be called out to lead. Um, in your guys' case, you were called to just pick up everything and leave and go to Mexico to start this ministry. Not everybody's called to, right, to leave their, their own zip code. They can find a way to serve passionately uh, and purposefully where they're at. And I know that, that you guys are both, you know, you guys are both passionate about that concept. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that um, two things about what you just said. I think it's it was tempting to think that what we were doing along the way and still is, is good enough. You know, in the beginning, people are like, oh, that's so great. You're helping orphans. And we could feel kind of falsely good about the efforts that we were doing instead of the outcome of what we were doing, just that, you know, input of how, how we were doing it. But the longer we stayed in that, in that space, in the orphan care space, the more we continued to feel dissatisfied with uh, what was not happening, not just what was, what, not just what we were doing. So like in the beginning, it was like, oh gosh, everybody needs vaccinated and we need to get them clean water and they need to have roofs that don't leak. And so we started to fix physical needs, but that wasn't, 
Um, eventually, that wasn't as satisfying. We knew that there was more needs than just physical. Um, even though meeting physical needs made for some really great brochures, it wasn't going to change the cycle of poverty in their lives. We needed to add you know, things like spiritual input and educational input. And so once we realized we were going to have to educationally supplement what the government was providing the orphans we were serving, that felt like a pretty big mountain. Like, how do we get them in the right schools? How do we pay that tuition? How do we get them the right, you know, equipment and support? And that was great for a couple of years. But then we began to graduate orphans from bachelor's degrees, which felt like, again, made some really great brochures. But we, we one of our very first college graduates, we, um, we invited over to dinner after he had gotten a job. He was like a, an engineer, basically. And he told us like six weeks after he had started that he was going to quit his job. And we said, well, why are you quitting your job? And he said, well, there's this guy and he's always telling me what to do. He follows me around and he drives me crazy. And Todd said, is he your boss? And he's like, yes, I, I can't stand it. <laughs> and, and we looked at each other and realized we hadn't adequately addressed his issues with authority or men, that he had emotional needs. And eventually we would realize social needs that, um, that weren't addressed. So we had to c- continue to like, go back to the, the methodology. We knew the why. We knew what we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it. But the how just continued needing refined the more time we spent in that space and got, you know, we're led by people who were doing best practices in the world and were challenged by new research and thinking. And, but I think that those principles apply whether you cross the border or you cross the street, whatever it is that your listeners are feeling passionate about being engaged in the larger world in that space continues to give you new ideas and challenge kind of existing principles. So so tell me a little bit about how you guys went from Mexico to global. Like what, what did that look like? Yeah, almost, well, every single one of our new uh, sites that we, we went to really were from an invitation. So we first expanded um, in Mexico and Nigeria, and it was through somebody that we knew. It was a, a relationship saying, hey, we see what you're doing in Monterey. Would you consider doing that here? Uh, and so that's how Nigeria started. That's how the other sites in Mexico started. Actually, the, the other sites in Mexico and Cancun, we have a site outside of Cancun, and, and that site started because of a relationship that started in Monterey. And, and so it's, it's really all through relationship. And then we'd go there. We actually don't do things very quickly in the sense of new places. We were very careful and cautious. And, and we have some basic principles that we stand by because we want to make sure we do them well. We don't want to start a site and then have to shut it down because we want the right resources, the right people. Um, so we spend a lot of time in preparation. And obviously, we're in Haiti. When we when the when the earthquake happened in Haiti, people were calling us saying, "Why well, is back to back go there? Why is back to back go there?" And we realized we are we're not a relief organization. We do relief, but we're a development organization. So we did go to Haiti, but three years later, and we are about developing and investing in the lives over a long period of time of orphans and vulnerable children and families. So so we we when we realized those key things, those mission critical things that we're really good at. And that lent to also doing what we do in those places. And I think what's important about what you just said and what struck me was, is that I'm sure you guys had some semblance of, a, of an idea around that vision before Haiti, but have it galvanized into the more you walk out a vision, the more clear the vision becomes, right? But you never get that clarity if you just sit in your basement and never actually start walking. Yeah, I used to have some pretty strong feelings about birth moms before I actually knew a birth mom. You know, I was like, 
I kind of had that traditional, like, how could everybody, anybody ever leave this beautiful child behind and making immediate assumptions and judgments about them. And then I met a birth mom and realized the sense of desperation she felt and the the hand that life had dealt her and the culture that she was trying to um, thrive inside of. And then I realized what that mama needs is not my judgment, but my empathy and even our support. And so as the organization has developed, we've expanded. The why is still the same. We want to love and serve the orphaned and vulnerable child. But we now know you can't do it without loving their mom and loving their incarcerated father or loving the community that they live in or the school that they attend. <clears throat> and so that that whole um, vision has continued to expand. That's amazing. It's something you don't necessarily initially think of, right? When you start down a path. And I, I like and I tell this even in, even to our business clients is sometimes you're called out in faith. You guys remember the old, I'll, I'll date myself again, the old Indiana Jones. I don't remember which movie it was. One of the, I think it might've been the Temple of Doom where he's standing at the big chasm and he has mm-hmm. to get to the other side and there's no way across. And he realizes that he's actually has to step in faith and not until he actually makes that step does the rock appear. Right. And I think so, that's so analogous, I think, to our lives. We can stay on the sideline and, and never take that chance to start stepping without the answers. Uh, or we can say, you know what? I'm called to do this. I don't have all the answers but I'm sure that I'll learn them and I'll find them out as I go. And I think it sounds like that's what you guys have done from the very first trip you took to Mexico. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that, that Beth kind of hinted towards is we're, we're avid learners, so we're not afraid to course correct. So the, the end game is still the same. The final outcome is still the same, but we're not afraid to, to change the course of how we're doing something to do it better or to, to improve on it. And, and that's really honestly comes from most of our staff and their avid learning and their ability to say, Hey, there's gotta be a better way to do this or a better way to have impact here. And, and that's a, that's been a huge, huge asset for us as an organization. And I think being willing to change and not get stuck in your rut of what you are doing and saying there is a better way. And I think it's that muscle, making sure that that muscle gets exercised on a pretty regular basis means that like what we're all experiencing right now with the coronavirus, we have some muscles to pick up things like disruption and change and obstacles and challenge and innovation. Those are things that our field staff deal with on a really regular basis as we want them to not just do things the way we've always done them. So now we have a new challenge in front of us, but we have seen, uh, Back to Back has about 300 staff. We've seen in the last couple of weeks, those staff really um, use those prior experiences and those muscles to innovate and disrupt and, and think outside the box. It's interesting you use that terminology because we're constantly talking to our clients about the safety box and we teach the science behind it, right? So we're, we're wired for self-preservation. We call it self-preservation orientation. And we had on Dr. Richard Boyatis a while back and then one of his colleagues, Dr. Tony Jack, and they did all this research on the fact that we process information down one of two pathways, the analytical pathway or the empathic pathway in our brain. And if you're processing the analytical pathway, you're actually processing. You're not open to change. You're not open to new ideas. It's more of a calculator. And the empathic pathway activates that emotional centers in our brain, which is how we make decisions anyway. But the one thing we talk about a lot is your mindset is critical because if you operate out of a sense of self-preservation and fear, you will always limit yourself because of fear of fill in the blank, right? Fear of, well, I would never go to Mexico because if I do that then, and you just start making up a story, that doesn't even, will probably likely never come true. 
And so many people, I think, that are listening right now because they're confined to their house, they're not even driving around in their car likely. My challenge to you is, is what's your mindset today? Is it one of fear or is it one of faith? Mm-hmm. Because they'll both make you take action. It'll just be very different action. Mm-hmm. And, and you guys have both demonstrated that when you operate out of faith, it's not that the fear doesn't exist. It still exists. It's just that you believe that somebody else is in control of the outcome. And I think so many people get stuck in their own head of, of what they can or can't do. Well, I, want, I have a passion for orphans. I mean, my pastor said I'm supposed to take care of the widows and the orphan. I have a passion for that. So I, I guess I'll just I'll pray about it. Well, faith without works is dead, right? Let's go. Right. Let's go. Yeah. So t- tell us a little bit about how you guys have maintained a mindset, both the two of you, but for your staff, the mindset of, of, of positivity, optimism, and hey, don't be afraid of failing. Let's continue to think outside the safety box so we can have continuous improvement in order to deliver on our why. I mean, Todd does a really good job of that. So I'm sure he'll have a, a great answer. I, I sometimes get asked, you know, in interview settings or even donors or, or constituents or potential talent that might join the organization, they'll say like, where do you see back to back in 10 years? And uh, everything in me wants to come up with really big numbers. I mean, any of us know how to say like, we're going to be in a hundred countries and helping a million children with a billion dollars. Like, and if, if you come up with some kind of big number, people might look at you and go, wow, that, you know, they're a visionary. That's a, that's got a lot of vision. That's not vision. That's just, that's just bravado. Vision, I believe is really just listening and taking the next step and trusting that the steps beyond that, that you can't see are going to be good. Even if they're hard, even if they're, if you have to, you know, reconfigure and reevaluate and, and even regress a little, just listening and taking the next step. That's actually what I think vision's about. And I think our staff have um, in every way embodied that idea that like, you know, Todd had a staff meeting recently and he was telling them, we, we actually don't know. We don't know if this is going to be one month or three months. We don't know which of which site's going to be impacted the most, what it's going to cost us emotionally and physically and relationally and financially. We, there's a lot we don't know, but that we we don't need to stop having vision because we don't know 10 steps from now. We certainly know what the next step is. So we'll just take it and take that ground and listen and take the next, the next step. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing I would add is, you know, because we're, you know, 22 years old as an organization, we've seen, we've had crisis before, uh, not necessarily in the pandemic sense, but, you know, I was just commenting last week to somebody, you know, we've dealt with the Boko Haram, not directly in Nigeria, but we've had scares there or, or frightening seasons. We've had, you know, people die at sites that have caused, you know, anxiety and stress. We've, we've had, we dealt with the cartels seasons in Mexico and, and through all that, um, you learn to one trust trust deeply. Also, know that things will work out, and and this sometimes it's a season of learning, and we learn and we innovate and we we disrupt. And so, I actually literally have written in my 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 notebook that I carry: start, stop, continue. We need to be asking those questions right now. What are we What are we What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to start doing even more of? And then, what should we continue to do even more so? Because we know we can't not do it. It's got it. We got to do this. We got to care for orphans in this way. That's so good. And I do think these, these times, these crisis times, you probably have seen some of the biggest growth in your people uh, over the 22 years, right? It's, it's during the crisis that people have to innovate and they have to think differently because status quo just doesn't, it's not acceptable. 
um, and I've heard it said multiple times in the last couple of weeks, is that these are the, these are the times to try men's souls. No, it's not that. It's the, these are the times that reveal men, men's and women's character. Like, mm-hmm. like, are you an innovator? Are you, are, you a, are you somebody who thinks about yourself? Are you somebody who thinks about the greater good? Are you somebody who's willing to take chances and take risks to do something different? I love all the innovation I'm seeing right now. I mean, some of it's goofy. <laughs> a bunch of teenagers and my daughter's trying to get me on TikToks, you know, that kind of innovation. Uh, right. But from a business standpoint and from a, a relational standpoint, we're seeing lots of innovation. And I think that you've experienced that. Yeah, we were just talking um, this weekend with our leadership that basically every organization right now is like a startup. I mean, everyone's needing to exercise muscles of agility and, um, you know, collaboration and heightened communication. And, um, you know, they need to be lean and they need to uh, evaluate really quickly and be kind of customer centric and all those, all those principles that really um, are advantageous to a startup. Everybody needs to do those right now. And I think, I, I think really, I think the other thing that <clears throat> is really important is to develop strong relationships so that there's a sense of support and trust among a team that's working together, whether that's a department or a field team or whatever, that they would, they would feel like this is a safe place for me to have a new idea. This is a safe place for me to have a bad idea. This is a safe place for me to be able to express what my needs are right now or my fears. Um, <clears throat> that's a, that, that kind of communication really accelerates what, what can happen through us. And so developing those communication skills on a regular basis so that when you really need them, they're there at the ready, I think is an important principle. That's so good. And I think we're seeing this now. And I, I was talking to some of our clients the other day about when you're under a crisis situation, if you allow your self-preservation to rule the day, you tend to operate as a leader uh, through heavier compliance. Uh, whereas those who have been able to recognize that their why is the people that they lead, they'll actually operate through heavier compassion. Mm-hmm. You have a choice. But because of self-preservation and the cortisol and the, and the fight or flight that most leaders are in right now, they're, gonna, they, they're getting heavier on the compliance side of things. And that's what it's doing is it's confining their teams. It's confining the innovation. It's actually getting the exact opposite outcome that will set their business or their whatever uh, organization up for success in the future. But it sounds like you guys have been able to lean into that. Let's lead with compassion and let's encourage innovation, even if it's, even if it's stupid. <laughs> It's, let's let's see let's hear about it let's see if it'll work yeah we and one thing that that we we did I, I think just honestly accidentally but we we did communicate to our team our site leaderships so were in eight places around the world so our site leadership some basic principles around the COVID-19 issues um, and I immediately started a WhatsApp because that's how we communicate globally a lot quick for quick communication about some of the updates but really each site led their own kind of initiative to how how they were going to confront one the the local rules and laws and how they deal with that and still serve kids and families and so they had to be innovative very quickly and so it was incredibly um, blessed in the sense that the leadership at each place and location did such a good job giving permission to their staff to innovate but giving permission to their staff to uh, meet needs that were going to be urgent and important, you know, setting families up for two weeks at a time rather than, you know, trying to piecemeal some donation. They have access 
the resources so they can do that. So it's been a, I've been extremely impressed with our, with our leadership around the world and how quickly they've responded and how they've thought out of the box or, you know, in some cases in the box, like what resources do we currently have and what are we doing that will work in another format? That's great. People that know my official why story, know, I talk about my papa growing up on the farm and problem solvers rule the world. I mean, that's one of the big beliefs <clears throat> that I learned from him and you're seeing it happen in real time right now. The problem solvers are the ones who are already creating. <clears throat> I saw an article the other day that the, after the 2008 financial crisis, and they had a list of maybe a dozen businesses that were started coming out of that crisis in like 09. And they're all very successful businesses today because somebody was forced to innovate, solve a, a unique problem, a unique way. Um, let me ask you guys another question, because I think this is, this is one that is really important. I, you hear this a lot because sometimes it can feel daunting to look at the vision of serving the orphans in a meaningful, tangible way worldwide. And they go, oh, wow. I mean, but how many people out there have a passion and a purpose? I guess the question I'm going to ask is, you guys were singularly focused on that vision. You knew that was your call. You knew that was your purpose and you've walked into it boldly. Um, a lot of people I see around today, they kind of dabble in five or six or seven different quote unquote callings or, or, or purposes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is that okay? If, or is it, no, you know what? You're probably led with your gifts and your strengths and your callings to, to kind of focus in on a lane and then give it everything you got. What do you think between the difference of those two things? I was, I just, I don't know the same answer to your question, but I think it's, we, we, we obviously have short-term mission trip teams and we always say to the, the trip members on the last day, this is the tomorrow when you're home is really the eighth day or the seventh day of your trip. And so you're, we believe people are really called to invest in others and to invest in, in the lives of other, either their family or their, in their local community. And so I, I don't, I don't know that specifically, it, it matters to be laser focused like we are or to invest in multiple things. But I do think that in our, in our particular case, God wants us to invest in people. And, and this is our people group who we invest in significantly um, beyond you know, our, our family, obviously. But it's a, it's, it's the, the laser focus definitely helps us steward resources better and helps us be intentional. Um, but, um, but I think people are just called to invest in others. I think also like um, a number of years ago, I started to really pray to God and say, you know, when we don't have wisdom, we ask you for wisdom. And when we don't have self-control, we ask you for self-control. What I need some more of is capacity. I have, I want more capacity. I have, there's more opportunities than I have hours in the day or even emotional and mental bandwidth to manage. <clears throat> but there's still like, I, I still have the desire inside of me and I believe he gave us that desire. So could you increase my capacity? And I've watched that prayer get answered. I've watched him um, really uh, increase capacity. And I think in part, it's an honoring of the, what we've done with the capacity he's given us. And it's, it is that laser beam. Um, this is where we're going. And I, and I can remember really distinctly, you know, like when we first went, it was like, we are going to help all the orphans in the world. And then eventually I learned what that number was. And I was like, okay, well, it takes a lot to help the few that are, you know, that I'm in direct relationship with, let alone, you know, what our current footprint is and recognizing the need for partnership and collaboration and kind of best practices sharing has been the biggest force multiplier in our organization. And, um, 2000 and 
2012, I think it was, Todd and I were going to be sharing at one of our industry conferences, a breakout workshop called Starting Your Mid, starting a taking your startup organization to midsize. So we had started with our savings account and two of us. And that year we were about $5 million and about a hundred employees. And the, the distance between our savings account and 5 million and the two of us and a hundred was fraught with, you know, forward and back trial and error kind of experiences. And along the way, people mentored us on how to do things like strategic planning and board governance and things that we didn't know before. And so we took those tools and we were hoping, I mean, we honestly made 20 copies of our handouts. We were thinking if 20 unique organizations come to this breakout, that would be unbelievable. We opened the door to the breakout, over 400 (laughs) people walked in because we're actually all pretty hungry to learn from each other. What have you done that's worked and how might I adapt that to to my need or my organization? So we were totally overwhelmed. You know, they're blowing out those accordion walls in our breakout room at the conference. And Todd stood on the stage and said, anything we've ever created, any policy manual, any any training, anything we've ever made, if it can help you guys, like we'll give it away. And you just take our logo off and stick your logo on. And information doesn't flow one direction. As we began to open up what we had learned and the things that we had developed to other people, things flew, you know, flowed back towards us. And almost immediately we doubled in size because I think you can't really break that principle that the more you give away, the more that you get entrusted with. And that, that's been one of the biggest, um, growth accelerators for us without a doubt. Well, I hope everybody caught that out there. Uh, cause that is so powerful. I mean, I, I'm thinking of not only the reaping and sowing, but the parable of the 10 talents and your, your force multiplier of wanting capacity was really revealed to you through others, not through yourself. So those who pray for more capacity, it isn't, you're going to get more capacity yourself. You're going to figure out how to, how to drive capacity through others, right? And that's what leadership really is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that, that all goes back to your like, what, what is our why? And although there are other good ideas out there and there are other, um, you know, really neat things people are doing. I'm not sure that there's gas in my tank for what that is. This is, this is just the gas. This is where we have gas. And we can tell that like, you know, to be honest, I, we feel just as passionate about the orphan today as we did then. Like, it's not like, ho-hum, there's another orphan or there's another need. We in fact feel more sensitive because we now know more about than we ever have you know, what their experiences are like and their needs are. So I think that's the other way you kind of can tell you're in your lane is that it builds over time. It doesn't drain over time. Mm, That's good. That's good. Yeah. I think that the concept, again, back to our, the biology of self-preservation is it's so limiting when the reality is, is when you give it away, it comes back you know, tenfold to you, but it's such a hard thing to do when you're an entrepreneur out there. A lot of them, I think about, I've been doing this almost 11 years now and you're kind of always like, okay, I gotta, I gotta, for the, it's now month to month. First, you know, the first year, you're month to month, you're week to week, right? Then you're month to month and you're quarter to quarter and you're all really mind, your, your mindfulness is on yourself and, and on your business. But then over time you start to learn that, wait a minute, if I give away, my knowledge, my passion, my purpose, it, it starts to actually have this multiplying effect on others who believe what I believe, who then continue to accelerate it. I think for entrepreneurs out there, I'm not saying give your services away. You might have to. 
but I'm saying think about what you're really, really good at and how can you add value to that to someone who's maybe it's just a step behind you. Maybe they're three steps behind you. That's such a powerful principle. Well, and especially in the nonprofit world, um, generally speaking, globally, uh, most people who, have, who are running a nonprofit have really great hearts, but sometimes they lack the training and, and resourcing in managing people and money or managing people and resources. And so if, if we can help them build some of those skills and, and develop some of those, those resources or, or abilities, it, it's, it's a home run for everybody because we're not in competition. We're, we're actually a win for an orphan somewhere else in the world because they got better because we shared resources with them is a win for us. That's, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about, as we start to land the plane here, um, how, how people out there can get involved and help support you guys in this vision for Back to Back. What's the, what's the website? Let's just send them there first. Uh, the website is back and the number two, back.org, backtoback.org. Backtoback.org, back, number two, back.org. And right now, is there anything that's very tangible and specific that you guys have as a need that somebody might feel led to, to get involved with? If anybody's interested in being a part of the coronavirus relief that we have going on around the world, we're just, um, you know, starting to understand the impact in countries like India, Nigeria, Haiti, uh, Mexico, some of the places that we're serving. So uh, the benefit to what we're up to is, like Todd mentioned earlier, we're a development organization, which means we have boots on the ground every day of the year. So any um, dollar that anybody would donate towards that coronavirus relief would be invested and stewarded in a development sense um, towards the rebuilding of a community and, um, and or a family that might be, have been put at risk as a result of the current crisis. That's so good. And I think for all of those who are listening, you can still be a part of the team, right? You, can, you, you might not be going to Mexico or Haiti or India or wherever, but you can still feel a connected part of the back-to-back team. Uh, by supporting them prayerfully and financially uh, to, to live out that, that vision. Now, another thing is, Beth, you are, for those who might know the name Beth Guckenberger, you are a pretty famous author, speaker. Uh, how many books are you up to now? Uh, nine. Nine? nine books. Well, I've written two, and I like to kill myself <laughs> with both, and you're up to nine. I can't believe that. What's your latest? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, the latest was a, is a 40-day journey. Um, you know, when I started writing 12 years ago, uh, we were more inclined to read 300 page books, but increasingly so, we like our content in short, um, digestible pieces. So, I wrote a 40 day journey um, called Reckless Faith, and it's about how to say yes. So, every day there's an opportunity for you to say yes to something that your inclination might cause you to want to self protect or self preserve, like you mentioned. And so, some days you're, it's yes to being generous, and some days it's yes to being authentic. Um, but my hope is at the end of 40 days that people would be more willing to raise their hand for what it is um, that's out there. That's awesome. Where can they get more information about your books and your speaking? Because you do a lot of that as well. Yeah, they can. Uh, all the books are available on Amazon. So if they uh, just look up any of those books on Amazon, they're welcome to find it there. I also have a website, bethguckenberger.com, and there they can find out um, about my speaking and writing. That's that's awesome. And hopefully when we reached out to you and to invite you to be a guest on our podcast, that was the, that day, you hadn't said yes to something yet. Hopefully, that would <laughs> we picked the right the right time to ask. Uh, is uh, uh, either of you have anything else that we can do to help support you, our audience, our listeners? Because uh, we love what you're doing, and we want to support you guys as much as possible. We appreciate it. You know, this is a ever changing world now, day by day, 
so, you know, we, we would love uh, certainly for people to pray for us, pray for the kids we serve and the families. We are um, doing as much and as often the heavy lifting is required uh, to work through this with all of our sites and staff families and staff uh, globally. So that'd be much appreciated. We really appreciate you having us. Absolutely. Thank you guys. It's been incredible. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.